Welcome to a, another Biota Podcast. It's uh, July 30th, 2012, and I have the pleasure of actually spending time with Roy Plotnik. Hello, Roy. Hello. Yeah, how are you doing? Very well, very well. So one of my favourite Biota Podcasts was the one associated with whether artificial life could explain the Precambrian period that mm-hmm. you and I and maybe two or three others did maybe about five or six years ago now. It, so- it sounds right. It sounds right. So um, in terms of that kind of time frame, I've had an amazing opportunity today to spend time in your lab and get a sense from both the fossils and the simulation uh, what you do. Right. But um, for folks listening in who may not have heard that podcast, can you describe, firstly, what, what exists in the fossils and, secondly, how your simulations map to what you see in the fossils? Okay, well, the big one of the major events in Earth history is the transition from the Precambrian, specifically from the period of time we now call the Ediacaran, uh, to the Cambrian. So we're talking about the period from roughly, let's say, 560 million years ago to about 530 million years ago. If you look at life of the Ediacaran, there are multicellular organisms. They are Some of them are quite large. We, there are lots of arguments about what they are, whether they're an, ancestral to modern-day forms. There seem to be one or two that may be ca- of the larger ones that are capable of some limited movement. In terms of the uh, fossil record of movement, most of it seems to be very tiny things feeding on microbial un- in and under microbial mats. And there is no evidence that anything in that period of time, prior to 543 million years ago, had eyes, had antennae, anything sense large-scale sensory organs. So the world of the, pre-cam- of the latest Precambrian is very simple in many ways compared to what we see. Met large forms living in and on mats, nothing that would look recognizably that you say, you know, that's, that's an, an arthropod or that's an annelid or that's a bivalve, things that we think have maybe ancestral to jellyfish, but it's, it's a lot of argument about that. You go up to the, the Cambrian, you go over 543 million years ago, you start to get um, organisms with shells, you start to get uh, trace fossils, that's the remains of animal movement, which are no longer simply horizontal but also are vertical, we get uh, indications of the modern faunas coming in by 510 million years ago. You get the, the Burgess Shale that everybody knows about, the older Chengjian. You've got organisms with eyes, antennae, things like that. So there's a large-scale organism, uh, development of sense organs. So what I'm really interested in is why do we have this transition between things that were small, very small, mobile, nose large, those noticeable sense organs, and very simple traces, tracks and trails, to the much more complex world we find later on, and it's specifically looking at behavior and looking at a sensory biology of those periods of time. And this uh, concept I've suggested is that we have a revolution in information, that the world has become spatially, and to probably to some extent temporally more complex as we go over the boundary, as we get more mobile things, as we get larger things, as the sediment starts to get churned out, as biomass gets um, concentrated in more forms, uh, this makes the world more complex. And organisms that don't have a way of detecting these complexities um, are at a disadvantage. Now, the way I've been exploring this is by using a very, compared to what a lot of people do, very simple agent model. Uh, the agent model essentially has an organism 
that examines its nearest neighbors' uh, sites uh, and sees what kind of resources are there, moves into those sites based on which site has the highest amount of resources, consumes what's there. If the nearest neighbor sites don't have a resource, it detects a chemical signal from a further site and moves in that direction. And what I've been saying is about a lot of assumption in the fossil literature that if you find these complex or complicated pathways of movement, that this means that the behavior was complex. Uh, but what we actually, uh, the model indicates that spatial heterogeneity, spatial complexity, with very simple behavior can make patterns that look complicated. So my original models I've been working on for a while have been one-dimensional, two, I mean two-dimensional, just looking at the surface. I've recently expanded it to multiple, to three dimensions, and also adding multiple agents so that they can interact with each other and seeing what kinds of patterns we can get. I think what we want to do is come up with a minimal explanation for the patterns we see in terms of behavior. Certainly. Okay, Certainly. so that's in a nutshell. <laughs> in a nutshell. So um, in terms of what we've done today, and I mean, for, for, for the folks listening in, uh, I also had the, the privilege to show Roy Noble 8 to give him a sense, basically, of, of my background and mm-hmm. also... Um, the kind of independent autonomous agents and the notion of space and these kind of things with the view that certainly what you were describing and predation is an interesting part of what you were describing as well because your model doesn't have any form of predation currently right i want to put it in but predation as you've described it is things that are either swimming above or around that give some additional element can can you describe predation in the in the ediacaran i mean what's the predation there is there this is a again a source of some controversy there's no evidence of bite marks there's no evidence of tooth marks there's no evidence of something large consuming something else large um so there's no macroscopic predation Mm -hmm. seems to be lacking in the ediacaran this led um the suggestion so people have called this the garden of (laughs) ediacaran as a result because it was peaceful and quiet but um, there are some s- indications in some small shells in the very latest part of the Ediac, just before the Cambrian, of borings. And it's been pointed out by one of my colleagues, you know, if you had something like a jellyfish engulfing something whole, you wouldn't see a record of that. But you don't see teeth. You don't see claws in any of the Ediacaran forms. Those are totally unknown at that point in time. So, again, one of the things that's most people think is, is a large component of the of the Cambrian uh, radiation. I, I don't like the idea of, of, of um, that it's some sort of fast. I don't like the implication that it's really fast. You know, while that people it's over twenty million years, thirty million years, you've got to change, and that's yes. you know not a, quite so revolutionary. But the Cambrian radiation, the Cambrian expansion of multicellular life, a lot of that is predation. It, it, it may very well be predation driven. We start to get things that have clearly seem to be predation-related eyes, claws, things like that. There's arguments. There's a, a large, in a large relative sense, organism called Anomalocaris that seems to be predatory. Um, it has large. Uh, uh, it looks like a predaceous mouth. It has large uh, pincers and lacking things in front, uh, claws in front. What do we call large appendages? Has eyes on top of its head and may have been a sitting weight predator. Um, we may have had very small predators, things called ketonats, probably right at the beginning of the Cambrian. We find um, 
things living up in the water column that may have been predaceous. But clear evidence of, of macroscopic predation really doesn't seem to come in until the Cambrian, and that's going to change the game. One of the things, again, about predation, predation is expensive. Certainly. It's, you have to locate your prey, you have to chase it down, you have to capture it, you have to dismember it, and there has to be enough there at the end to have made the, the expense of it worthwhile to do so. So, again, one of the questions that comes up is, what is the expense of predation? When does the expense of predation get uh, less than the cost of not predating? You know, when does, when does the, the cookie you're getting at the end, the piece of pizza you're getting yes. at the end, pay for the energy you've just expended? And again, that's a question of uh, evolving muscles and other tissues. A bag of jelly doesn't have much to eat on it. I mean, t- turtles may eat jellyfish, but overall, you want the richer the organisms are to eat, the bet more it's worthwhile to be a predator. So a lot of these, are, I think, are much involved in... There's a lot of feedbacks going on in the whole system. So the example of the, the burrowing snail, or the snail that eats through the shell in order right. to get the organism, doesn't have to do the dismembering, really. No. But, so in terms of predation, I guess there's a continuum right. of where the burrowing snail is somewhere in there, but it doesn't well, the, have to... Well, you know, tissids are, are the moon snails, the tissids, are classic predators. They, they eat... You go to a beach these days, you find shells with a, a, a sort of a conical hole in them. And that's produced by these predaceous snails. And that's actually a favorite animal for paleontologists to work on to study predation because the, it's, it's so clear. We know it's who did definitive, it. It's definitive, yes. It's definitive who knows who it's did it. It's a bullet hole, really, isn't right. it? Right, yeah. it really is. And, it, it, and there are people who've done studies where they've tried to, where they've traced the history of this predation through time. They look at where, if there's a favorite spot where they predate. Um, are there favorite organisms they predate on? They actually can find failed examples of predation uh, going on with those. But again, that's, um, there's a lot of a question of, of how do these animals decide this, this clam is too big to bore through given the time that I have. They have to watch out for their own. They actually predate on each other. They have to watch oh, out for so their own. So they bore each other. They can bore each other. You can find you know, they're, 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 you know, at least you know it's safe to eat because it's the same thing you are. Um, <laughs> But um, that's that's one of the classic cases that we know of predation in the record. Yes. But that again is you've got the animal has there are there's a whole field of an ecology of of, of organ, how do you, an organism decide when to feed on something, when to stop feeding, when to run away and look for another day, things like that. Again, one of the major questions I'm interested in is when did this, this these games really start going? And I'm pretty sure it was pretty early on. So in terms of in terms of artificial life simulating this, there's almost a continuum. I mean, you're you're starting very much in the kind of edia- your your model is ediacaran. Cambria, even modern, you can use it for modern days. C- certainly, yeah. but I mean, it, but in terms of the addition of complexity, in terms of right. actually, so can you describe a little bit about what you found in terms of firstly having a very dense, nutritious feeding source that's there, and then moving the feeding source in, into further Spaces. Well, I mean, this the again. The, the if if I start with, I have I can switch uh, switch on and off the organism's ability to detect at a distance. Mm-hmm. So the simplest organism can only detect near field, very close in. So if you imagine something that's just um, has just taste. Certainly, 
can stick its tongue out and taste in the vicinity, but can't smell. Yes. And so, if you do something like that, if food, if resources are distributed continuously, not necessarily homogeneously, but continuously, that's fine, because you always are going to go to the next spot that has the most food, and you don't really care what's 20 spots over, because you'd always, eventually you might get there. But if food is patchy, if there's a space between you and the next spot, then once you've eaten what you're in, you have to find that next little rich bit. Super. And so you can, you, that's when it becomes necessary to have smell or vision or some other way of saying, oh, I need to go that way. And some of my earlier models, I actually played with, um, you know, if things just randomly goes around. But if, if you don't have that ability, you just don't get as much as you can out of it. So evolution would select for something with the ability to find something at a distance the moment things became patchy. Certainly. Just as what you were trying to show in actuality, the artificial life perspective associated with the evolution of senses, and Mm -hmm. then that is an interesting problem in and of itself too. So, I mean, certainly from our initial discussion five, six years ago, the idea of the emergence of intelligence through survival, mm-hmm. uh, although clearly at its very most primitive level, it's not intelligence. But I mean, somewhere through the continuum, right. it becomes intelligence. I found absolutely fascinating, and I think that a number of folk who corresponded with me following right. found that as well. Can you talk a little bit about? I mean, it's it's one thing to go from something with no eyes, no sense, right. of, to something with that. Can you talk about? the evolution of these kind of sense organs and how you, you think it, it could be modeled from an artificial-like perspective? Well, again, I think, you know, again, it depends on the sense organ. A lot of things, you know, since if you go back to bacteria, bacteria can sense chemical gradients. Certainly. Single-celled protists can sense chemical gradients. So that is not, you know, the actual cellular machinery for detecting chemical gradients is pretty straightforward to make. Um, the great material for gathering information on, once you have multiple parts of the body, I'll go to something like Carl Sims type blocky <laughs> things, if you have multiple parts of the body and you have something that allows you to determine how much stress is on that, so proprioceptor kind mm-hmm. of, of device, that can very easily be turned into a mechanical receptor for detecting water currents or something like that. Sure. It's, that's, that's, that's straightforward to do. Um, in terms of uh, a light, again, there's been... I think this was in one of Dawkins' books, as mm-hmm. I recall. There's a famous experiment where they started with a single photoreceptor cell on a membrane, and by they were able to evolve it into an eye yes. over time. So it's it's. I don't think it's particularly complicated mm-hmm. to get those kinds of things done. My, I have One of my other lines of research, I've been looking at the hearing, hearing in insects. Mm-hmm. And um, the foss- based on talking to the entomologists, ears and insects evolved independently 17, 18 times. Um, insects have ears on their legs, mm-hmm. like crickets and katydids do. They have ears on their abdomens. They have ears on their wings. They have wings at the base of their thorax. I mean, they, anywhere you can think you can put an an ear, except right on the head proper. Yes. You can put, they have developed ears, and it's, they're easy to make. You just take a piece of the cuticle that has a mechanical receptor, appropriate receptor underneath it, with an air sac, trachea, and you thin it. Yes. And all of a sudden you've got a drum and you've Certainly. got something that can detect sound. So, 
Um, the real issue is, 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 is I don't think it's all that complicated to develop sensory organs of some kind. What does get complicated is you also need to take, be able to take the signal from those sensory organs and interpret them. Certainly, Steve Grant has done a number of things in software and hardware right. in terms of what um, a better term, kind of atomizing these elements. Mm-hmm. In, and uh, I now maintain an open source version of his work that oh, does okay. this called Symmetry, where exactly as you describe, really bits are connected together and they may end up seeing or hearing mm-hmm. or moving, right. but they all have uh, the same kind of communication interfaces, mm-hmm. basically. So that's an interesting... Okay, so let's map symmetry onto what you're describing. I guess food is, is primarily survival, is primarily well, the, the benefit that you get out of Survival and reproduction. Yes, yes. Everything else is secondary. Certainly, certainly. So, okay, so that's very interesting. So you start off and you allow, I guess, through some kind of random selection, the ability to add one of these elements. So mm-hmm. you start off with... Right. A full set of elements, but your first one mm-hmm. has none of these elements, but it can right. buy, buy... That's very interesting. Okay. This... Well, you know, well, there's a lot of indication in molecular biology, and uh, my colleague Dan McShay mm-hmm. at Duke would say, in, in, in uh, large-scale evolution, too, of duplication. Certainly. You take, a, you take something, you duplicate it, you keep the original to keep doing what you originally wanted to do, the other one can change and add... Certainly. Add complexity, add functionality to what you've got. Yes, yes. So duplication of parts is, 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 is I think, is one of those essential qualities. So taking, that's going taking on. symmetry, you have those elements of symmetry. You would then have a simulated agent that was based up, mm-hmm. based from these atomic components, which you would then simulate in free space as opposed to the feeding grid that you have currently. Right. And then over many, many iterations, you could see what came out of that and the change in movement. Now, the predation element is interesting as well. I seem to recall, and I need to double-check the code, but there may be something like teeth or something that consumes Mm -hmm. as part of these. Hmm. Uh, And that may be an interesting element. The other part that you noted is associated with how, in the well, I think we had the discussion maybe associated with the early Cameron, how predators were detected. Right. And the multiple ways of predator detection. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Again, you're going to detect predators the same way organisms do today. <laughs> uh, you can smell them coming. Yes. I mean, one, again, I think one of the things that's going on in terms of information, we have there are far, far more kinds of organisms around the Cambrian than there were before. Certainly. So uh, you need to be able to develop a way of detecting that predator that's, that you can say, that's a predator, it's not a kind specific, it's not a harmless little thing floating by that I don't have to worry about. So the first thing, you know, there was always a smell of some kind. We did uh, experiments, one of my uh, former students, uh, Karen Coy, who's not a professor herself, uh, on worms, mm-hmm. uh, n- uh, nematode worms, where uh, she took a predator, uh, the flatworm, and she basically, you, you wash it, mm-hmm. and you take the fluid from that washed worm, you put it in near to the ne- where the nematode is, and the nematode goes, oh my god, there's somebody nearby, and it turns around and changes foraging pattern. Um, and it's been, this is fun about that is that these like, things have been raised in the laboratory for thousands and thousands and thousands <laughs> of generations, but they still they're know still this not. is something they need to run away from. Yes. Uh, we've, we've done similar experiments she did with, uh, with crabs and with snails. And in that case, the uh, predation clue was generally you take one of their congeners and you, you destroy it, you, you kill it. 
Yes. And then you put the dead thing in, and they say, oh, somebody's eaten one of my, somebody in my species, I should hide, I should run away. Yes. So chemical detection of, 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 of predation is one of the most fundamental ways you do it, either the predator itself or you know, some sort of fluid from somebody who died yes. of yes. your species, and you should say, okay, maybe there's somebody nearby I need to be careful of. And, of course, there's the usual visual kinds of methodology, too, that you want to, you want to be able to do that. All this, again, the, is, is the, the major issue is you got to be able to process it. you got to yes. be able to do something that says that's, that's not just somebody else, but that's, that's that one out there. And it, it becomes the more signals you have to process becomes, as you know, more exponential Certainly. growth in the amount of processing that's needed to do, which has a cost of its own. Certainly. Certainly. So artificial life is life as it could be. Right. This is something that I found very interesting spending a, a day with you today is that there's still many unknowns mm-hmm. in, in what you're looking at. And yeah. what artificial life could provide is actually potentially a multiplicity of solutions that could then map down right. onto, onto what you're specifically looking for. I mean, Can you talk a little bit about well, that? Well, the question, the question uh, I, that I wonder about, and this is this, one of the reasons I started in this whole field is that um, Steve Gould wrote his book, Wonderful Life. That inspired Bruce Damer and others to put together the first digital biota Certainly. conference to sort of say, is the growth of computer, worlds of artificial life, artificial intelligence, worlds of mm-hmm. the computer itself, the internet, all that, just starting out in those days, is there is the, the Cambrian explosion, again, I hate the word, explosion, Certainly, yes. similar to that. So the question, you know, so um, the uh, issue becomes, is, is, is that's, that's essentially how, how I got into that. Now, Gould, in his wonderful life, raised the issue of what kids call contingency. And um, he often holds up the example of, if you, he used the phrase, if you ran the tape of life again, mm-hmm. what would life be like? So if you were to go back to the Cambrian, find the early ancestral vertebrate and make it go extinct, as opposed to all the other things that went extinct, would we be around? And his yes. attitude, his express attitude was, Life is highly contingent upon individual things. Um, on the other hand, Simon Connery Morris, who was very heavily written about in, in Gould's book, um, has written several things where he's strongly disagreed. He feels that there's an inevitability to much of life, an inevitability to um, even to intelligence, that, would, that intelligence would evolve again. So he disagreed. He, he, we recognize contingency happens. I mean, if the Donna, if the asteroid hadn't hit us, mm-hmm. you know, we might not have. We might not be here. Certainly, the dinosaurs may, may or may not have gone extinct. Mm-hmm. Big, big argument. Don't want to go into that. But there are certainly contingent elements in history. Mm-hmm. But the big debate, the big philosophical debate, I think we always have, have always had in paleontology and continue to have, is what extent is the history of life contingent based on random happenings, random events, versus purely deterministic. Eventually, something will happen. Yes. And I tend to say that there are certain things, because of the nature of chemistry and physics, that are going to have to be, because, and this is where artificial life comes, because of the nature of complex systems Mm -hmm. that have to be. So that if you were to go to another planet, if you were to run the tape of life again, yes, we might not have us, mm-hmm. but you would still have organisms that were filter feeders. Certainly. 
you would have organisms that were deposit feeders. Yes. I think ecology, and players may be different, but you would, I, I suspect that you, if you were an ecologist and you went to another planet, you could do ecology, and there wouldn't be anything that would be fundamentally different. In order to have evolution, you have to have reproduction with duplic- duplication, revolution, mm-hmm. and mutation. The basic processes would be recognizable. <laughs> so I think artificial life gives us a way to say what about the evolution of life is by chance, by accident, and what is something that is just a function of the way systems have to behave, complex interacting systems. And I suspect that, you know, the, 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 my suspicion is that we will find, again, you know, aliens won't look like, as was it Star Trek's the quote, forehead aliens? Yes. yes. Well, it's just humans with a different forehead and don't, you know, on yes. top of their head. Yes. But we would rec- we'd still find life on other planets if we found it, as long as it's you know, water recognizable in, in, to a broad sense, even if it's not DNA, even if it's not the other things. Certainly. So, until we get to those other planets, I think A-Life will just play with those ideas. Yes. And, I mean, certainly something which today has impacted on as well for me is was the teeming nature of it. The fact that, um, as you say, fossils aren't rare. No, they're But there are, there are so many, and the, the trace fossils in terms of the tracks and all these kind of things, it, you know, visually it gives you a great sense of just the, the sheer numbers involved, which is ultimately a parallel computation fundamentally on some... Right. And so yes, in in these in these ways, uh, although you know the asteroid is a is an interesting one, but contingency certainly came up at the uh, mm-hmm. the last A Life conference that I was. No, uh, this is, and I, I think I, it's a. I think I raised this issue in the last time I spoke to you, mm-hmm. but one of the things that I that I had trouble with some of the A Life programs I had is they didn't have the disaster. Yes. You know things would go on like and evolve along, but you wouldn't have a sense where we're just going to randomly. Knock out yeah. half the things that are in there, or ninety percent, like at the end of the Permian. Mm-hmm. What if we were to sort of really hit the system hard? You know, uh, not computers crash. You know, <laughs> yeah. we're not going to crash the, the simulation, yeah. but yeah. have something in the simulation that says, "Let's not continue as it was. Let's do something that's that's unpredictable in the end of it, and really hit it and see what happens as it comes back up again." Mm-hmm. So that aspect of contingency, I think, is something that I would love to see thought about in A-Life models. Certainly. And, I mean, as we were discussing last night, things like temperature and, and change in the atmosphere and these kind of things oh, yeah. could be very interesting to add to artificial life simulations well, as well. It, long-term, and again, this is... Again, it's a computational problem, mm-hmm. as, you, as you know. But physical environments themselves shift. Instead of having a... a Again, maybe I'm out. Of, I'm a little, maybe too much, a little uh, loop. But having a moving target, certainly, in terms of the physical environment, would be a very interesting game to play. Certainly, because again, we see this in ecological systems. Uh, ecological systems, you know, it's the assumption is is if the environment is stable, you evolve to a climax state, and then everything will never change. Yes, but it's very clear that <clears throat> ecological systems, even in the absence of what humans have done, <laughs> are, have, are always being Reset. In fact, that disturbance is a major component of actually long-term system stability in, in natural systems. That you go on, and if you there's a classic thing. So if you have two species that are competitors with each other, the mm-hmm. only way you usually can get them to survive is if you have something either predating on both of them, mm-hmm. or there's enough disturbance to keep, keep them together. If you don't have that kind of external 
disturbance in the system, then you may be getting un- things that, not, that are not realistic. Certainly, certainly. So one of the other points that I took away from the ALIFE conference was the lack or distrust of complexity. It was one of these strange things, because, I mean, doing what I do with Noble Ape away from the academic ALIFE community, at mm-hmm. least, I, I love the ability to take multiple simulations and put them together and see what comes out of that, turn right, one of right. them off, these kind of things. But uh, the Artificial Life Conference really returned, I think, to a more traditional model. It was actually really quite curious. And the thing that I liked was um, the, the special issue that you brought out that actually acknowledged, uh, you know, multiple um, effects mm-hmm. uh, that f- fed back into movement, which was exactly... Uh, noble ape associated with external diversity right. and all these kind. Could you talk a little bit about that and how right. that's on your well, work? Well, well, this is a was a special issue of, of the uh, PNAS, Proceedings National Academy of Sciences, in 2008, I think it is, on movement ecology. Certainly. And Ryan Net, Ryan Netan and his co-workers have put together a number of papers, trying to come up with a way of synthesizing how ecologists look at movement. Mm-hmm. There is a Huge literature. I mean, they, I think they one of the papers in the in the issue summarized ten years worth of papers that discussed movement and plants and animals and protists. And there were like twenty five thousand papers or some ungodly amount like that. And so they said, "What?" And the problem is, is that everybody uses a different language to describe movement. Everybody uses a different approach to thinking about movement. And so what they propose is what they call a movement ecology paradigm. And uh, the movement ecology paradigm essentially says you can really look at movement, and I'm, I'm going to simplify greatly here, as a set of, of things. First of all, you have the, uh, the where to move. So an organism, the navigation capacity. How does an organism decide where it should move to? And this is going to be a function of its sensory capabilities and its neurological capabilities of processing that information. Then the second part of it is the, um, the essentially the locomotory abilities, the, the, the how to move. Um, I might see something I'd like to eat fly, you know, swimming above my head, but if I can't swim, I can't get there. So there are certain biomechanical constraints that organisms have. Organisms have different abilities of being able to move. So I can sense something's up there, but I might either want to move to, if it's a mate or a food item, or away from if it's a predator. But I also have the, have the ability to move over towards or away. The third of this is the, the third element of this is the internal state of the organism. And so the internal state of the organism is I'm hungry, I'm satiated, I, I want to mate, we've made it, I'm smoking a cigarette, you know, those kinds of internal states, which are really hard to get in, in either modern or, or fossil organisms. Uh, but that, that is the decision of the why to move, as, as Rand put it. So you have those sort of three things, and you can put all, pretty much all organismal things into sort of that kind of the, the where to move, how to move, why to move, and their interactions with each other. Those are all embedded further into the question of uh, the external environment. So that could be, again, uh, the uh, physical environment or the biotic environment. Uh, for an organism, again, a, a, mate, a potential mate walking by is going to be external environment. Mm-hmm. 
that may, again, if your internal status is tied to mate, then you go, oh, there she is, and you go towards it, and you you move towards it. But if you smell it as a male, and you're a male, well, you may be not that interested, perhaps. <laughs> so this isn't, uh, external environment is sort of the context in which all this occurs. So you put all these together, these all interact with each other. And they interact over time, and they interact over space. But the end result is the organism either stays in one place, which is a one kind of movement phase, or the organism moves. The end result is a movement path. Mm-hmm. So the resulting movement path, and we study the movement path in modern organisms by radio collars or by photographing them, and there's a lot of tremendous amount of research on, on things like that, is the idea that this movement path is what, we, is what we end up studying, and it is a result of all these features. And what I'm trying to do is say, I've just published a paper on this, um, is saying, well, in actuality, this, is, this is, can be applied to fossil organisms as well. They had the same questions of the where to move, the why, how to move, the why to move. Mm-hmm. And, and then what we have, we have a lot of trace fossils. That's, that's the movement path. So I've tried to make that, bring that conceptual development into how we look at trace fossils, which I hope is going to make a change of how people talk about trace fossils. I'm going to a meeting in a few weeks. And hopefully I won't, uh, of trace fossil specialists, and hopefully I won't get yelled at. <laughs> well, if I will, so what? <laughs> but I think it's also an important perspective for particularly artificial life developers that are looking at simulated agents, and mm-hmm. maybe even simulated agents that would be beneficial to biologists that are studying these right. kind of things, to actually embody that in their simulations in, in some way. Yeah, it, the framework can certainly put it into AI. I don't, I don't see why not. Certainly. And I think, I mean, as you've seen with Noble A, a number of those components are in there already, and I kind of put them in implicitly right. associated with just creating layered simulations. Mm-hmm. But it's very interesting that that is being explicitly recognized um, as, as a, a mechanism, and I think certainly that kind of right. feedback into the, perhaps the academic artificial life community is, right. is very powerful uh, as well. And talking more in terms of the practical side of things, I mean, certainly something that caught me through the A-Life conference was that I... I have a squandered luxury in some regard in terms of the folks that come through and like developing a noble ape and ask for, mm-hmm. you know, projects and these kind of things. And certainly I found at the conference maybe half a dozen papers that immediately mapped back to what I was doing in noble ape that would be relatively easy. Right. You are very much, um, in what you do, you develop your own software. Mm-hmm. You, you work very much, um, but in terms of ideas of open source and these kind of things, I mean, you're, you're married to your language to a certain extent. Yes. But there must be there must be a kind of strength of numbers where potentially if you got developers that were working on it or it was part of an open source program yeah. or something like this, you could start seeing what you wanted to see without the kind of maintenance that you, yeah, you have mean, currently. Can you tell us a little bit This is a bit of a bit of background on this. Uh, the first computer language I ever learned was Fortran. That's back in high school, more years ago than I want to talk about. I've had Fortran programming classes. My advisor had programming Fortran, so I've always programmed in Fortran. Yes. Uh, I'm currently using uh, Fortran 95 with a, with, an inter, uh, with a Windows interface called Winteractor, and I'm very comfortable programming in Fortran. Mm-hmm. And I tr- looked at going to C, and I just, you know, I just didn't feel the comfort level was there for me to make that transition to programming something else. And as I think as Brian Hayes once put it, it's not language you... That's not always the best language. It's the language you know best. Mm-hmm. That said, I have n- absolutely, you know, no objection if somebody wants to look at w- what I've done 
and take the basic conceptual concepts and do it in a different language that might be better for me, maybe at the same time help me learn that language. I, this is, I'm not married <laughs> to Fortran, it's just where my comfort level is. For me, the major issue is um, I have to know what the program is doing, I have to understand the guts of it, and it has to be able to still address the questions that I'm interested in as a scientist. Part of this is I had a program at one point working with um, sort of the ancestral program to my trace fossil one called CAPS. And CAPS was specifically was a cellular automata-based program to look at seed dispersal and disturbance. Working with my colleague Bob Gardner in Maryland on this one. He did almost all the programming again in Fortran because that's what he's comfortable with also. And at one point, I, we hired a, here a, uh, a young programmer who was doing it in, in one of the C-based languages, <laughs> the C or C++. And he did things, and I just I said, I don't understand what you did. I don't know why you do this. So, well, this is the best way to do it. And I said, well, but, but tell me. So it is an interesting problem. And yeah. certainly, um, I mean, for background folks listening in, uh, the fractal model that Roy uses for the placement of food is very similar to the fractal model that I use for landscape generation with no blade. And I think probably about 90, well, if there were more, if there was more commentary in there, probably 90% of the code you were relatively comfortable with. It was a few optimizations that I'd done that in reflection, to have people such as yourself use the code, I would right. perfectly easily remove those optimizations. Right. Because my view is that humans are more valuable than processing power on some fundamental level. Mm -hmm. So I can see, I mean, what you, what you present with your, with your Fortran you know, and these kind of things, is a relatively small step away from C if the C is presented to you in an equivalent that's correct. kind yeah, of way. Yeah. And I think that's interesting. That, um, and certainly this is something I found um, working with the MSU folk as well, is that there are certain things that I put in a shorthand in Noble Lane, mm -hmm. which really shouldn't be in there for, you know, long-term academic use. Right. And I think it's interesting from an engineering perspective to actually identify... If it's going to be used by scientists that are particular, mm -hmm. that it needs to be written in a very particular way. It is, yeah, I mean, again, you know, any time you do the whole question of program validation verification, Certainly. you know, yes, you need to annotate it, but it needs to be more just than what the code is doing, but it's also with what what questions are being addressed. And I think that's the fundamental tension we have always have between programmers and the, and the scientists using it. Scientists, Certainly. you know, I've had been told on one of our occasions that we shouldn't do programming. This, is, this issue has come up occasionally, that we should let, leave it to the professionals. Mm -hmm. And my attitude is, yeah, but I know what questions I want to ask, and I want to be able to write code that lets me do that. Yes. Now, it may not be the best, again, it may not be the best code, but I know what it's asking in this case. And I can't make it to be the sickest interface, but I know what I'm, you know, it shows me that the answers I want, I'm hoping to get, get to so, on these things. So, Roy, in terms of broader things. We had an initial discussion last night about my perspective on the A-Life conference mm -hmm. because I think you felt not necessarily out of touch, but that you just didn't have a connection with what yeah. was going on currently. I, I certainly don't. I mean, I occasionally listen to the podcast and I check it. You know, I see, if a paper comes out that I see on robotics or, or A-Life that mm -hmm. I find interesting, I will look at it. I know some, some things have come out in the last couple of years and sort of catch my eye. But I haven't done it had much active contact with that community, I would say, since the last Biota conferences were mm. held. And that's maybe partly my fault, partly... I think it's gone in a variety of different directions. Yeah. So it's really quite a difficult community to track. Yeah. 
Um, and aside from, as you described, the kind of passive way. But in terms of what you're working on, I think you've given a very clear definition of what you'd like to mm-hmm. see in an assistive sense. Right. Um, but in terms of the broader community... Yeah. I mean, for the past week, I guess, I've been meeting with scientists, mm-hmm. and it's been a real luxury in, in time sure. to get a sense of what you are working on, mm-hmm. and also what I can do to assist with what you're working on, Right. with the view that, uh, certainly with my work with Noble Ape and, and Biota, it is fundamentally a volunteer effort. Right. And uh, it's an interesting problem as well, because certainly... In terms of industry and industry support of these kind of things, mm-hmm. there are ways in which industry can pick up these programs and work with them too. It right. would give support here as well. So in terms of the in terms of the broader themes, our fish life community, these kind of things, what more would you like to see in the next decade? Well, it's, it's, it's really hard to say. I, I would love, to, you know, I'd be more than interested to talk to people that I guess this is one form of doing it mm-hmm. right now, uh, about what uh, a real life actually is happening, you know, what... Uh, it, artificial life is interesting to me if it sheds light on, um, I don't know, what you, what you call real life, I mean, biological life. Mm-hmm. If it sheds light on biological life and the kinds of things that are going on with biological life. More, my concern is, is sort of if a life becomes its own self-generating, what well, we're just going a thing where it's only interested in in, yes. in a life research and a life ideas. I was thinking I was talking with you about this earlier. There was uh, sort of this little area of physics that came out of uh, Pierbach developed things on um, um, self-organized criticality and models for evolution, and this became a cottage industry in the physics journals. It was just continually papers coming out. A lot of them I got sent to review where they were sort of looking at, well, self-organized criticality about lo- about evolution and extinctions, this and that, but they never went back clearly to the original literature and never talked to paleontologists mm-hmm. or to evolutionary <laughs> biologists about what they were doing. Um, I'm a great believer. My, my, my career is multidisciplinary. I'm probably more than most than anybody else in my, my field. I go way out of mm-hmm. paleontology. Mm-hmm. Like, like into A-Life and the fractals and things Certainly. like that. Um, I would welcome if somebody saying, gee, here's this model I'm doing and has something to say about the Cambrian explosion, if they actually came and talked to us about Certainly. what we know about the Cambrian explosion or the extinction of the dinosaurs or patterns in, in, in life. And, you know, what's the current thinking? What's the current literature? What do we say about it? So I think, I think it's, in general, I think most paleontologists would, would love to, we all love to talk about mm-hmm. what we do, because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. otherwise why do it? Um, but I think it, it's, it's, I'm interested to hear what people are coming up with, but I'd like to also know that, you know, come, come and talk to us too. Certainly. About what we're doing. Certainly. So the outreach goes to the community, basically. Yeah, I, I'm, it's the responsibility of individuals to, to make contact and do this kind of, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a tremendous believer. This paper I just wrote, uh, I, I just had come out on the trace fossils. Let me give you, this is an example of this kind of intercommunity thing. Um, trace fossils, for, you know, we may not know, are fossilized tracks and trails and burrows and borings and all the things that animals or plants produce through their life activities. So it is the fossils of behavior, if you want to think about it. Or fossils, it's, it's when something does a behavior that interacts with the substrate and leaves a trace behind. Not all behaviors leave a trace. And there's a large community in paleontology 
and in sedimentary geology are people who work with trace fossils as environmental indicators um, and uh, things such as that. There have been writings about these things. They say, oh, it's all, you know, trace fossils are, are writing in of behavior. But if you go into the literature of trace fossils, traditional literature of trace fossils, and you say, okay, well, these are people talking about behavior. What models, what concepts from the animal behavior literature do they bring in? It's not there. There is scarcely a mention of any of the, even the most fundamental Tinbergen type four questions mm-hmm. of animal behavior in the trace fossil literature that doesn't exist. At the same time, if you go into the trace fossil, the papers of animal, the books about animal behavior, the textbooks of animal behavior, they might say, well, we know we have dinosaurs had nests, that may be a little mentioned, but the idea that uh, the behavior has evolved over 550 million years, or, or, billion, uh, or since the origin of life, is not in the mindset of behavioral biologists. It isn't in their books. It isn't in their papers. They talk about evolution. It's very short-term. And so this paper I wrote was sort of like, hey, guys, you got to talk to each other. Mm-hmm. And I'm a tremendous believer in, in, in we don't want to reinvent wheels, that people in different fields have real, maybe different perspectives on things, and talking to each other in the end result, you know, um, helps, helps everybody. So, you know, I'm, I've been talking to people outside of paleontology for, for, for years. Mm-hmm. And I encourage it for everybody else Very to, good. to talk to people. Very good. All right, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, yeah. spending today with you and, and being able to stay with you. And thank you very much for, uh, okay. for the opportunity to be recorded on the Spider Podcast. Okay. okay. And hopefully it won't take five years before our next recording. <laughs> so, yeah. Because, yes, it's always insightful. So thank you very much. Thank you. All right.